listening to Treasuring Scripture, a podcast of the weekly teaching ministry of Lebanon Baptist Church, Roswell, Georgia. To learn more about our ministry, please visit us at LebanonBaptist.org. Well, if you would, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Um, I don't know about you personally, um, but I have uh, in my own heart over the last year and a half uh, kind of noticed a, a, a dimming, as it were, of or a weariness maybe of life. I don't know if any of you have felt that or not over the last year and a half, kind of just this weary, trudging feel that can kind of seep into your life and you kind of, well, you just deal with it. But then as time goes on and sometimes it doesn't go away and it, it, it kind of sticks and remains. And you may find yourself in a service like this this morning, hearing moving songs. That was very moving. And yet you want to feel something, <laughs> And you find yourself disconnected from maybe the, the heart of worship. Maybe you see people around you and they seem to just be fully engaged in joyful, reverent worship. And you find yourself looking around kind of, are they real? Or, you know, why, why don't I feel the same way? Or, man, I, I, I need to feel different. I think sometimes we can begin to allow the pressures of life, maybe even sin in our own life. Um, sometimes it's just the circumstances of life to, to cause us to have dimmed affections for God. And what do we do when our affections for God are not inflamed, but rather they're, they're muted? I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that type of a, a spot before. But the passage we're going to go to today is a wonderful passage. It's a passage about the most delightful topic. But it's not delightful for everyone. For some, this may be a difficult message to listen to because there's a prerequisite for this message being a delight to you. <laughs> and the prerequisite is actually that first you're brought very low. None of us likes to be low. Mourning, sadness, depression, shame, guilt. Now, these are all things that may be felt by those of us this morning who will read this story, this particular message. But another reason why this message, this, this passage for us might be delightful is because it is a story. I love stories. How many of you like stories? We like stories. So here's a story we get to engage with. And I think what I'm praying the Lord will do in our hearts this morning is he'll actually cause us to once again with fresh eyes and a fresh heart enjoy the gift of God's forgiveness. And it would actually cause us to rejoice and exult in worship, like maybe even we heard this morning. But in order to tell the story, we've got to set it up. So let me set up the story. The story takes place in a land far, far away. <laughs> it's not 
only far geographically, but it's also culturally in time distant from us. So to really understand the impact of this particular story that Luke includes in his gospel, we are going to have to, in many ways, allow ourselves the joy of entering into the story, engaging our imaginations, and seeking to engage our senses within the story. Let me pray, and then I'm going to give some background information for us before we jump into the text, okay? So would you pray with me? Father, this morning we want to come to your word and allow the truths of the text to impact our hearts. We want to be caught up, even as we just heard sung, of looking at Jesus. We want to be caught musing, staring at, wondering about Jesus. I pray that you would in your grace and mercy, comfort sinners this morning with the joy of your forgiveness. I pray that those here this morning who are distressed, who find themselves in turmoil inwardly, who are wondering if ever you might look favorably upon them, that they might see the grace, the love, the compassion and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some background information. There are three characters in this story. And so I want to give you some background to all three of the main characters before we jump into it. And hopefully this will help help it come alive as we read it. So first of all, the first character we're going to see in this story is a Pharisee. Uh, This Pharisee, his name is Simon. Who is he? Well, I don't want to belabor you with a lot of details about Pharisees, but there are some really interesting things that might help us this morning. A Pharisee was a purist, okay? If you think back to the close of the Old Testament, those prophets, you started having people coming back from exile, from the Babylonian exile, etc. They started coming back into Israel, And as they came back into Israel, they realized that the majority of the Jews that were remaining in the land had just kind of become part of the land. They had joined the peoples of the land. They had intermarried with people of the land. Um, Judaism was, in, in many ways, you could say all but lost. You see this with the story of Ezra and the story of Nehemiah and their zeal to get back a genuine worship of the Lord. Well, these very strict adherents to the law of Moses or the Torah, as they came back, began to separate themselves from the people and the cultures around them in a very sharp and distinct way. Initially, this group of people, they called themselves uh, the saints. They paid strict attention to the law, but after a time, they began to call themselves the separatists. Okay, which is actually what the word Pharisee means, is the separatist or someone who's separate from other people. This would be similar to maybe how the Puritans of the 17th century became the nonconformists of the 19th century. As you can figure, they were not liked by those who practiced Judaism a little loosely. Nor were they liked by political powers who were not Jewish 
or strict adherence to Judaism. They experienced a lot of turmoil, as did the whole land in that region during this intertestamental period between the Old Testaments and the New Testament. They experienced different levels of power and influence. And even at great times, there was persecution. Uh, There was one of the Hasmonean kings that crucified 800 Pharisees. So they knew persecution. However, after some time, they finally begun to have enough power and influence. They overthrew a king, the king and his wife, and they began to work, still very in an unsettled way, to set up their own rulers. And this is when Rome stepped in. Rome stepped in and and set up the kings and rulers that they wanted. And so once again, at the time of Jesus, these separatists found themselves in the minority party in terms of government, but with greater influence over the people. They reverenced learning and character above just about everything else. They were known for separation and holiness. In particular, they separated themselves from anything that would legally contaminate them, like eating with a non-Jew, being around anyone sympathetic to Rome, like a tax collector, or being around notorious sinners. They prided themselves on their keeping of the Mosaic law and how distinct they were amongst the people. In fact, they even had a name for each other. Okay, so men and women could both be in this party. It wasn't just men. Men and women could both be in the Pharisees, and they would call each other neighbor. Neighbor, that was the word that they used for one another. So you can imagine, you know, you remember the story, the Pharisee says, so who is my neighbor? They loved to kind of associate with just themselves. Okay, so for those of you who like Harry Potter, and and, and the Pharisees might roll over if I said this, but the house of Slytherin, they were purists, the purebloods. They didn't like any contamination. They were all about keeping things exactly the way they should be. And they were very snooty type people. You don't associate with them. So men and women could be a part of this, and they were quite popular and powerful, and the people respected and followed them as religious leaders. All right, so that's a Pharisee, okay? That's a Pharisee. One more thing about the Pharisees. They did have expectations about a Messiah. Uh, The Messiah was going to come and, in essence, realize their loyalty to the Torah and their astuteness and would affirm that by ushering in political power, and they would be riding right there on the coattails of the Messiah and be part of this political power helping rule. That was, that's a Pharisee, okay? Lots more could be said, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that for now. The next person in our story is a notorious sinner, all right? It's, she's called the sinful woman. Who is she? Well, this woman is known in the area. She's a woman... In the passage, it says she's a woman of the city. Um, She's often referred to as the notorious sinner, okay, or the great sinner. She's referred to that actually three times in our story. Her sin may be morally abhorrent, or it could actually be political. Okay, she may assist tax collectors or have sided somehow with Rome. There has been a lot of literature written about this woman, and in particular, her promiscuity. She has been made into a prostitute. And while this may indeed be the case, 
the text does not demand such an interpretation, okay? But there's a lot of literature. In fact, there's, there's movies, um, there, there's plays that associate this woman with Mary Magdalene as a prostitute who allures Jesus, okay? And that is not at all in the text, okay? There is a story very similar to this one in the other three Gospels, okay? But it is a distinct event. There are two times that Jesus is interrupted at a feast by a woman with a jar of ointment. This is the first one. She is polar opposite to the Pharisee. She is not popular for her spirituality or her separatist mindset, Okay? She is regarded as refuse of the city, one who has wasted her life and one to be shunned. She indeed is a great sinner. She may have been wealthy or had some type of an inheritance, but she is not known for her wealth, rather her sinful life. That's the sinful woman. We'll find out some more about her as we go through the story. Third character, and this is who the story is really about. The story is about Jesus. Now, who is he? Now, what I'd like to do here is, would you pretend with me for just a moment that you've never read the New Testament? <laughs> okay, it's going to be hard to do. Do we have any 30-year-olds in the room? 30-year-old, any guys that are 30-ish? Raise your hand if you're 30, 31. Okay, would you stand? Just kind of stand for just a second. I know I'm picking on you. Sorry, this is really spontaneous. 30. We got one. Is he two? All right, here we go. Three. Okay, good, good. Okay, everybody look around. I just want you to associate age Oh, thank you. Yes. Age. This is about the age of Jesus. Okay. He's about 30 years old. Uh, he probably did not look like this photo, by the way. This is, this is actually a piece of artwork. Jesus was not white. Okay. He, he wasn't. Um, he was not an American citizen. I mean, there, there's a lot of things about Jesus we could say um, that I think sometimes we accidentally associate. Okay. So he's a young man just entering his 30s. He's Middle Eastern in complexion. If I had Sammy Morcos here, I'd maybe have him stand too. A slightly strange and potentially scandalous family history. His family disappeared for a few years right after Jesus was born. Some say they were in Egypt. Some say his miracle or his birth was a miracle. Others say it was a scandal. But there's always been a little strangeness about Jesus. The gossip died down as he lived a quieter childhood, learning things that children learn. However, recent events have caused no small amount of rumors, whispers, and wonderings. Jesus seems to be a very polarizing character for a 30-year-old. Everyone is trying to decide if they love him or if they hate him. Some people, of course, are going way too far and even suggesting that he's some sort of prophet, like the prophets of old. It's even been said that he's done supernatural things, like healing the sick, making blind people see, the lame to walk, and even raising dead people. Obviously, those are misguided claims and legendary stories created to dupe simple people into following him like sheep. Or... Are they? Sinners and common people seem to flock to him. It seems strange that legends would be created about someone so quickly and at such a young age. These types of claims would be easy to refute, to disprove. Perhaps if you and I could go and see him, could go watch him, we might be able to see if these things are really true. We could determine for ourselves, is he really a prophet? 
So Jesus, here in this text, where we are in the story, he's just begun his ministry in Galilee, which is north. It's the north part of Israel. It was more of the secularized part of Israel, the worldly part of Israel, and he's begun ministering up there. He's already done a lot, okay? He's done all those things we just mentioned. He's raised a widow's son to life. He's cast out demons. He's healed people. There's a lot that Jesus has already done. And as you can imagine, it's causing quite a stir. Everybody is going to go see Jesus because they want to see if this is really true. Could you imagine for a moment if Facebook and Twitter were around at this day? Bloop. The little birds would go crazy, right? Someone just got raised to life. No, he didn't. That's impossible. No, it really happened. It's out with my own eyes. Are you serious? You must be smoking something. Okay, there'd be all sorts of crazy comments and all sorts of things going on as this is happening. And so, as you can imagine, the people are flocking to go see Jesus and see if this is really true. In some ways, that's the setting we have for our story. Look with me real quickly at Luke 7, verse 30 before we jump into our story. Verse 30 of chapter 7, excuse me, we'll start at verse 29. It says, when all the people heard this, talking about one of Jesus' teachings about John, when all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of, of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So prior to this story in the text, there's this set up between two groups of people. And Luke has been strategically doing this all through his gospel. He's showing you two responses to Jesus. There are some who are welcoming him and accepting him for what he says he is. And then there's, there are those who through pride and arrogance are rejecting him and saying he's not who he says he is. And so now we come to our story. Verse 36. We find a Pharisee inviting Jesus to a banquet. Now, a banquet. Let's talk about this for a second. If if you heard Scott read, he said two phrases. He, I think, even stumbled on one of them because it's just awkward. Reclined at table, Okay. Reclined at table. What does that mean? Jesus goes and reclines at table. Let me tell you what it's not. It's not this, okay? It's not this. This is not Jesus reclined at table, okay? It's not a recliner, a little button you push down, and I recline, I feel good. Ah, all right, rest and relaxation. No, it's more like, more like this, okay? And I, I couldn't find a really, really good picture that wasn't super fuzzy or just an old piece of artwork that was hard to see what was going on. So I, I kind of want to demonstrate this for you for just a second. If you see that these are really low-seated tables, these are, this is called the Roman triclinium. It's three kind of tables uh, that are set off to the side. Often it would be kind of a, like benches or couches next to those tables, okay? And if you think about the culture and time period, they didn't have paved roads, okay? So everything was dirt and, and stone that you'd walk on. And it was the same path that the donkey would have walked on and the, the horse would have walked on and, and that all manner of people are walking on. And so your feet get really dusty and dirty. So when you come into a place where there's a low sitting table, 
you don't want to sit cross-legged because your feet are nasty and they're right there by the food. They're right there next to you. So it's just kind of, it's kind of gross. So you actually want to keep your feet away from the table. And so what they do is they'd recline towards the table. And so like, I, I mean, I, I kind of want to demonstrate this for you. Hopefully I don't mess up my microphone here. So if you could imagine coming into the table, here's the table, this little low platform here. And literally you'd come in and you'd recline towards the table with your feet away from the table so that the dirty nastiness of the road isn't close to anybody else who's eating. It's not close to you as you're eating and you're able to, you know, eat. I'm sure your elbow got really tired, but you know, you'd eat and things of that sort. Okay. Okay. All right. (laughs) So Jesus comes in and he reclines at a table like this. This is the banquet, the setup. Okay. Also though, with these banquets is other people would be invited, especially if it was like somebody who was prominent in the area then they'd leave the door open so anybody could come in. Now, this is culturally really strange because none of us view eating as a spectator sport, okay? There's no, like, stats for how well you rolled up a ball of bread and stuffed it in your mouth. You know, it's like, oh, hey, did you see that? Whoa, that was amazing. We don't view eating as a spectator sport, but guess what? Some cultures do. In fact, I experienced this a little bit when I was in Indonesia a few years back. We were in Indonesia visiting with some some missionaries and someone prominent from the culture, from the community, invited us for a meal. And so we actually had the meal at kind of like a town hall type event. And so they pulled everything out and we get up there to eat and we find out there's like chairs set up for people to watch us eat. Like they're coming, lots of people, lots of people filling in, sitting in the chairs. And and, and what are they there for? To watch us eat. Ooh, this is gonna be entertaining. Culturally, that's what they did, all right? So if someone was, was, you know, a foreign dignitary or someone who was, you know, uh, popular or someone who was important, they would open the doors up and they'd allow other people to come in and observe the meal. They could listen to the inter- interchanges and interaction. By the way, Jesus warned about this. He said, hey, when you go to a meal, don't immediately go plop yourself down at the table with the important people. Stay off to the side. Because if you go plop yourself down, they might tell you to move and that's embarrassing, <laughs> Right? So this is the setting of this particular meal. All right, we are ready to jump into the story. Let's engage our imaginations. Let's try to picture, picture the scene. Here we go. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Can you picture the ridiculousness of this scene? The awkward, I mean, really awkwardness of this scene. It's very common for lots of people to come watch the meal. But here's a woman in a Pharisee's house who should not be there because she is one whom the Pharisee would disdain, right? The Pharisee keeps himself separate from such people. Ooh. I am a distinct one. Don't mar me, right? And here comes this woman. And she doesn't just come and stay on the outside, which maybe would have been acceptable. She comes right up to Jesus at the table. 
whose feet are away from the food. Away, matter of fact, that would have been the most easily accessible point to Jesus was his feet. She comes all the way in. People know her. People saw her enter. People are seeing her go right to the table. And they're wondering what is going on. And this woman who is known for her sinfulness comes right up to the feet of Jesus and is weeping. The tears are flowing and dripping. And you can imagine as a tear falls and hits the dusty, dirty feet of Jesus, it makes a muddy streak down his feet. And another tear splashes and makes another muddy streak down his feet. And so she then begins to wipe the dirt and the dust and the mud off of his feet with her hair. It's a very powerful, poignant scene and extremely awkward for everybody there. <laughs> like really awkward. What is going to happen? Everybody is watching this woman and wondering, how is Jesus going to gently or harshly get this woman away? Because obviously she shouldn't be here. In fact, we're given a little picture into Simon's mindset. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him, that is Jesus, invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, now, that that almost sounds like it could be like an audible, like, oh my goodness, whoa, what's going on? It's not, it's probably not audible. It's probably just in his head, okay? He says to himself, If this man were a prophet, pause, that's a question that literally just comes up a few paragraphs earlier in chapter 7, after he raises this this, uh, widow woman's son back to life, people are saying, a prophet has arisen among us, God has visited his people, and so here's the Pharisee, is, are you, are you a prophet? But he has this idea of what that would look like. And he says, surely if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. And totally rejected her is is the the assumed continuation of that sentence, the continuation of that thought. If if Jesus really knew who this was, he would totally put put her in her place, reject her, tell her to get away from him because she's unclean, unholy, a vile sinner. Now, Simon, he is, well, let's just say it this way. He's actually insecure. (laughs) We'll, We'll figure this out a little bit more later, but Simon's mindset on Jesus, he hasn't committed to who Jesus is because he's afraid of what the neighbors will think. Remember his little group of neighbors? He's afraid of what they might think. He invites him to the house, but he's not at all going to demonstrate warmth and acceptance of Jesus because that would be too much. So he's kind of, he's kind of scared about what people around him think. And when you're scared of what people think of you, you tend to be very judgmental. Because actually you're looking for a platform to stand on. You're looking for something to anchor yourself to because you're you're not sure where you are. 
And the way that Simon seems to do this is by judging this woman and judging Jesus. Let's continue reading through the story. And Jesus, answering him, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Okay, so, so once again, bear with me here. Here we go. Let's imagine, imagination station here. So here, the, here this lady comes up. She's coming up behind Jesus. She's weeping, wiping his feet, etc. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. What is Jesus going to say? Uh, is Simon going to say anything? What's going to happen here? And Jesus does say something. And he actually says, hey, Simon, I've got something to say to you. Okay, so that's, I mean, that, okay. Maybe he's going to say something like, did you forget to shut your door? Because the rat got in. Okay, like they're wondering, what is Jesus going to say? Okay, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And Simon says, okay, say it, teacher. And then this happens. Jesus tells a story. Jesus goes Nathan the prophet on Simon the Pharisee. Verse 41. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. That would be about two years' wages. And the other, 50. That's about two months' wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. I don't know if Simon's picked it up yet. I don't know if he's caught on yet. He's just, okay, I'm not sure where Jesus is going with this, but here's a strange thing happening right now. It's really awkward. Let me just go ahead and answer Jesus' question. Uh, I suppose the one whom, you know, was forgiven the larger debt. And Jesus says, you have judged rightly. Verse 44. The explosion happens. Are you ready? Then turning towards the woman, this is interesting. So he's, he's been talking to Simon with this woman at his feet. So turning towards the woman, he doesn't address the woman. He keeps addressing Simon. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? <laughs> Everybody has seen this woman, okay? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Jesus just assaulted the host verbally and attacked his hospitality. Can you imagine doing that at a family dinner? Can you imagine if an in-law did that? (laughs) You're at Thanksgiving and someone's like, hey, you know, mom, this... This food stinks. This is horrible, you know? And the floor is dirty. This place just is unkept. It'd be, what? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Jesus just confronts Simon and actually attacks his hospitality harshly. So talk about awkwardness. Jesus just took an awkward situation and made it more awkward, okay? Okay. Verse 47, Jesus is not just dealing with Simon here. He's also dealing with this woman. Therefore, I tell you, still talking to Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven 
for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Jesus is now talking to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the story. And I hope you can visualize it. Hope you can see it. But there's three really important things I want us to come away with today from this story. I'll say it in a sentence first. A correct understanding of self and the correct understanding of Jesus coupled with faith will result in life transformation. Let me say it again. A correct assessment of self and a correct understanding of Jesus coupled with faith will result in life transformation. Okay, so I'm going to break those things up into three segments, but that's, that's the idea. A correct ass- assessment of self and a correct understanding of Jesus coupled with faith will result in life transformation. First of all, let's talk about a correct understanding of self, self-assessment. A correct understanding of self does not come from debt comparison, but realizing one's position as a debtor. Okay? A correct understanding of self does not come from debt comparison, but from realizing one's position as a debtor. Did you notice that that's what Simon did? That's what Simon did. Here he is. He's the insecure guy. He's the Pharisee. He's the one that's supposed to be well-respected. And this well-respected man now has a woman who comes in who upsets everything, upsets the equilibrium. Now he, his house is going to be contaminated. There's lots of, you know, lot, what are people going to say? And so what he does is to bolster himself, he actually judges the woman for her large debt and then ultimately judges Jesus because of his association with her because he views himself as one who has a little debt. And Jesus actually identifies that strand of thinking with that little parable. Okay? So, a correct understanding of self does not come from debt comparison. You know what? Do what happens to us often when we're in a low place. Okay? It could be we're in a low place because of sin. It could be we're in a low place because of the circumstances of life. It could be in a low, low place. There, there could be all sorts of reasons why we're in a low place. But do you know what we often do in a low place? Is we seek to get higher. <laughs> we seek to feel better about ourselves. And so one of the methods that we often employ is judgment. We judge other people so we can feel better about ourselves. How many of you ever get tired of judging people? Some of you, it's like nonstop this morning has just been judgment of people, judgment of person, that person, then that person, then that person. And that probably comes from a place where you, you're, you're kind of flailing, you're insecure, you're not grounded or steady, and you're looking for something to make you feel grounded. And so you judge people. That is what Simon is doing. He is judging Let me say this, those who reject Jesus, if you remember the Pharisees had earlier in the passage rejected Jesus, those who reject Jesus will look for all manner of moral good to participate in. They'll promote it. They'll even give their lives for it as long as it puts them in a good light with their people. 
the people they want to be associated with. Whether that be society or even those against society. If you reject Jesus, you will look for something to make yourself feel good. And to feel better about yourself. That's Simon's approach to self-assessment. But you know what? The woman has an approach to self-assessment. The sinner looks at her own debt and is broken over her sin before Jesus. It's pretty obvious from the story that this woman has already encountered Jesus. Didn't just happen here at the, at the banquet. She's already encountered because when she hears Jesus is there, she makes a plan and she goes and gets ointment. It may be she was thinking, I'm going to come in and pour this on his head to show honor. And I'm going to honor him. But then as she gets there, all that's accessible are feet. And then she's crying and her, the feet are dirty. And she's like, you know, I'm just going to use it for this. <laughs> but either way, she already had a plan and she knew exactly who she was going to honor because she wanted to honor him because she had already experienced Jesus. But we can tell from her posture and from the way she's approaching Jesus that she is broken over her own sinfulness. And rather than clamoring to find some point of judgment on somebody else who's worse than her, She just comes broken before the Lord. The sinner looks at her own debt and is broken over her sin before Jesus. Have you ever been broken over your sin? Where all judgment ceases, you stop clamoring. And you actually just fall in the mercy of God. Jesus sees Simon for who he is and sees the sinner for who she is. Both are debtors who can't pay. So a correct understanding of self does not come from debt comparison, but rather realizing one's position as a debtor. Number two, a correct understanding of Jesus does not come through judgment of Jesus, but rather humble hearing with faith. Let me say that again. A correct understanding of Jesus does not come through judgment of Jesus, but rather humble hearing with faith. You say, what do you mean by this? As we said, lots of rumors are going around. Lots of people asking questions about who is this Jesus person. And some are listening to what Jesus is saying and accepting it. Others are putting Jesus against their preconceived notions of what they think this Jesus figure should be and are determining whether he fits that preconceived notion. Do you see that? Do you see the Pharisees approach here? Simon has preconditions, preconceptions of what Jesus should be like and judges him based on these assumptions. Jesus has already revealed himself in many ways in the region and in the country. Okay, once again, he's cast out demons, he's healed many sick, he's forgiven sins, he's even raised the dead to life. And yet Simon has a preconception of what Jesus should be like, and he should not be one who associates with sinful people. And so he then judges Jesus based on his preconceptions. And you know, that's what our culture does, and you know what, that's what we do often. We actually don't take Jesus for who he is in scripture. Instead, we think of what we feel is justice. I feel like this is justice. I feel like this is right. I feel like this is wrong. So Jesus must be for me and my views of what is right versus wrong. And so therefore, we kind of create Jesus in our own American Republican version. 
when he is not those things. You have to go to the text, the Bible, and say, what is Jesus like? Who has he declared himself to be? And then will you listen to that? Or will you judge him based on a set of preconceptions? It's interesting that in this encounter, in this story, Jesus claims to be the one who is the money lender. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. In the story, Jesus intentionally casts the sinner woman as the one who owes two years' wages and the Pharisee Simon as the one who owes two months' wages. But he says, they're both debtors and there's a moneylender who forgives both debtors. And then he turns to the woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Do you see what he just did? He said, I'm the money lender. <laughs> I am the money lender. Whew. Will Simon listen to Jesus' self-revelation about himself? Or will he continue to have his preconceptions? Don't miss the claim here. The people at the table didn't miss it. It says they started murmuring. Who is this that says he can forgive sins? I mean, can you imagine for just a moment? Mr. Knapp here, 30 years old, telling you, your sins are forgiven. Huh? <laughs> he's 30. And yet he's claiming that all the sins of this woman and all the sins of this Pharisee are actually against him. Jesus is making a very bold statement and a claim here that all sin is actually against him. Whether small or great, every single person has to do in the end with Jesus. And so you and I, we're all sinners and guess who we, are, guess who we will have to do with? Jesus. We'll have to stand before him. He's the money lender. He's the one who can forgive Jesus mercifully reveals himself to both Simon and all who will hear his words and actions. So go to the word and listen. Humble hearing with faith. And if you doubt his mercy and compassion, just read the gospels. Read of his crucifixion and his death for you. He's the moneylender dying for you and for me. So a correct understanding of self does not come from debt comparison, but realizing one's position as a debtor. And number two, a correct understanding of Jesus does not come through judgment of Jesus, but rather humble hearing with faith. But then thirdly and lastly, this will result in a transformed life, a saved life in a transformed life. I've said it this way, having our sins forgiven leads to peace. And only those at peace will be able to love selflessly. It's an amazing story. The woman broken over her sin at Jesus' feet. And Jesus tells her three things. 
One, your sins are forgiven. Two, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And while he's not setting up a particular structure here in the story, I think the structure is there, and that's this. Sin brings conflict and turmoil within. When the moneylender, when the one whom you have sinned against extends to you forgiveness and says, you are forgiven, there can be peace within. There can be peace and rest. Not in your goodness, not that you've somehow found something to stand on because you've judged other people, but because you've just fallen on the mercy of Jesus and he has granted it. And he's given you forgiveness. And now you're at peace. You don't have to prove yourself. When this happens, something amazing happens. There is a a genuine loss of interest in self-saving. Now you don't have to judge everybody else and assume you're better than them because Jesus has declared you forgiven. And now you're at peace, and guess what you can do? You can worship Jesus. That is what the woman is doing. She's brought her ointment, her, whether it's her inheritance, whether it was just some of her wealth. She brings it, and she pours it out on Jesus' feet. She's honoring him. She is worshiping him from her heart. Genuine worship. Because she's been secured, and she's at peace. Because she believed. She believed what Jesus said about himself, and therefore she's at rest, she's at peace. The word there is, your faith has saved you. Think of this, saved as in secured you. You are now secure. So I want you to see the cycle. I want you to see the security cycle. You come broken before Jesus, you get your sins forgiven, and now you're at peace. Now you're free to love. Now you're free to love. There's a, a children's book that we have, and I'm sure some of you have, have read it. It's called Ping. It's about a bird, okay, on the Yangtze River. And this bird with his family loves to go and go onto this little boat. But if you're the last duck, I think they're ducks. If you're the last duck, you get a whack on the back. And so Ping doesn't want to get whacked on the back. And so he... When, one day when he's going to be late, the last one, he ditches and he runs off to the side and he, and he finds himself out on the lonely Yangtze River by himself. And in the morning, he tries to find his family again. And as he's going around, he sees all manner of people doing all manner of things. And one of the, one of the scenes is of a fishing boat with birds who fish. And the birds dive down and grab whole fish and they bring them back up. And it shows you why, because they have a ring around their neck that doesn't allow them to swallow whole fish. So they bring the whole fish to the master who then gives them a piece of fish that they can swallow. You know what I found in my own life? Sin, discouragement, loneliness. They're like rings around a neck. They choke you from being able to actually enjoy the mercies of God. because you don't want to deal with it. But Jesus is the one who can set you free. 
He's the one who says, I forgive you. Your sin is actually against me and I can release you from that bondage. And you can actually enjoy all of me. I wonder if there are some here today, you're so burdened down by your own sin and your own guilt and your own shame. You're actually wondering, could I ever sing a song like that and mean it? Could I ever actually enjoy the person of Jesus from a real warm place in my heart? Absolutely. Because if you're a sinner here today, overwhelmed by your sin, Jesus offers you forgiveness. Is there any hope for a Pharisee like Simon? Absolutely. Luke intentionally does not let us know what happens. Matter of fact, he does this all through his book. He doesn't let us know what happens with John the Baptist. He doesn't let us know what happens with Simon the Pharisee. He doesn't let us know what happens with the older brother and the prodigal son. But we do know that there was another Pharisee in Scripture even more devoted to self-righteousness than Simon. And his name was Saul. And God miraculously forgave him of his self-righteousness and his sin and transformed him. Because that's what Jesus does. He transforms people. Whether you're a sinner here today in need of saving, you've never come to Jesus and received forgiveness. Or maybe you're a sinner here today who has just let the clouds of guilt and shame choke out your joy of Jesus. Can I tell you that we can revel in the forgiveness that's available in Jesus Christ. We can worship and be thankful because of what he's done for us. In fact, we're going to do that in just a moment. We're going to worship by participating in what we call communion, the Lord's table. So I'm going to pray and close us here for this time, but then we're going to just transition right in to the Lord's table. Father, you rescue sinners. You are merciful to the brokenhearted, to those that mourn, to those that repent and turn from their sin. Father, would you help us to exult in your salvation, to find our hearts one step closer to joy because we're remembering the forgiveness we have in Jesus. Lord, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you as their Savior, they've never experienced the forgiveness that's available through your death on the cross. I pray you'd help them to examine who you are and in, in humility come broken before you and receive the gift of life and be saved. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Treasuring Scripture. It's our desire that every Christian treasure God's Word in their heart. To follow our podcast, please hit the subscribe button. If you're interested in learning more about our church, please visit LebanonBaptist.org.